a robust defensive line recruiting class, but it was so deep last year and even very good the year before that, uh, you know, not signing the not high-end, just fairly mediocre recruiting class for defensive linemen on the West Coast this year, not going to make or break the recruiting class there either. So I think we can kind of live with that. The one piece of very good news for the recruiting class is the preferred walk-on haul that UW brought in. Uh, by my yeah. account, it just seems to still be growing. I guess it, there's no uh, limit on when, when it stops. But there's several three-star recruits, uh, defensive back Mikey Payai, who is very exciting because he was, he's competed at a high level. I think he won defensive MVP at the uh, Polynesian Bowl. And then defensive back Casey Kitchen, uh, local player, Isaiah Strong, who's Max Strong's son, and had to, was somehow faced with growing up in Pullman. Uh, Christian Galvin, uh, running back, little like spark plug running back. Logan Bruce, an offensive lineman. Uh, Bradley McGannon is a defensive end, so it wasn't is a three star, low three star recruit, but it wasn't a complete whiff on the defensive line recruiting class. Uh, Danny Rivera was a, a two star defensive back. I saw just today there was another outside linebacker. I don't know a lot of background on him uh, named Anthony Ward, who took a preferred walk on offer, and uh, I believe there was also a fullback who committed as a, a preferred walk on last night named Junior something from Fife. I don't remember oh, his last yeah, name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's a, a fullback from fight, so that's cool. So talk to me about what what do you make of the preferred walk-on class? This is a, a big group. We didn't have this many walk-ons typically in uh, Peterson's last few years. I, I, you know, in a very long time. I don't really remember. Recruiting is obviously covered differently than it was in the past, but having all these walk-ons is kind of a unique thing uh in Husky football history, do you think it matters a lot, or is this just kind of a, a icing on the cake for you? Uh, do, what do you mean by does it matter? I want a, I want a more elaborate definition uh, there. Are you good? <laughs> would you be able to sleep at night if we had zero? No. Uh, if, <laughs> do you think – how many of these players – I think we're up to nine now. Uh, do you think we'll have a meaningful role, be like maybe not starters, but at least – significant rotational contributors yeah. during their time at UW? I think for a lot, I think there's a significant chance for a lot of them to be, you know, not to not just be walk-on guys that you would just see on the roster that are, like, I think, I think uh, quite a few of them can make, make, um, see the field and be somebody who fans actually know, not just some guy who plays like five snaps a year. Um, Especially, and I, I, I think it was Max, um, our head guy at UWDP, um, talking in our writers group a few days ago, or maybe it was yesterday, about how we don't know if, it, uh, you know, debating is this we're getting a bunch of walk-ons because they're underrated gems, uh, and we want to pull them out and see what we can do with them, or is it just that our standards for recruiting have risen? And so these are kind of those guys that maybe would be giving a scholarship uh, three, four, five years ago. Um, and I think uh, it's probably a combination of both. Um, but, like, you look at a guy like, uh, I don't know, say Christian Galvin or um, uh, Isaiah Strong, and those are the two that popped into my head first. And if you look at, say, 2015 or whatever, those are pretty definitely guys who would be given scholarships. If you look at the – so I think the fact that, A, we were able to pull them in and convince them to pay their own way for a sec, it's such a no-risk situation. Um, with a, and, and with this staff's 
uh, history of developing low, lowly rated guys into significant contributors, I think that's a really low risk and a really high payoff potential. Because, um, yeah, I, I think the example that was used by Max when he was talking about this is would Aaron Fuller, for example, just off the top, said get a scholarship in 2020 if you if he were the same player in high school now. Um, or would he be one of these preferred walk-ons and, you know, be able to do something? Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm – based on this staff's history, I think I'm really excited for, for what a handful of them can turn into. Yeah, that's, I, I agree with that. I mean, it could have been Max, could have been me. It could have been anybody who said those things compared to Aaron Fuller. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, if you, you look have at, any- uh, if you compare these guys in the, the ratings that they got from 24-7, they kind of maxed out around .83. Not that this is the end of the world, and obviously UW coaching staff does a lot of their own rankings and ratings as a, in the evaluation period. So it, not to – give it too much credit, but it's kind of in the same general area where, like, Kyler Manu, not a great player, but certainly was a contributor. Uh, Quinton Pounds was in that same category. A uh, lot of players who washed out we didn't see a lot of over the years, but that's just from the 2015 class that you were referencing kind of on the front end. And not terribly far behind the ratings for uh, Tempus Bartlett, uh, Ezekiel Turner, Ben Burkirvin, DJ Beavers, who are players who, who did kind of make an impact. So it's it's also Jared Miller, uh, Jared Hilbers, Jordan Miller, also in that same general category. So there are very good players who are roughly comparable to these guys as recruits. I think Payai is the one who stands out just because of his accomplishments at the Senior Bowl. It seemed like, or the the Polynesian Bowl, it seemed like he put himself on the map against really good competition. And playing in Hawaii, at what I understand, is a smaller school. Kind of, it would be easy to get overlooked. So. Uh, getting an opportunity to get an up-close look at somebody like him would be, I would think, very valuable. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on while we're still on the oh, yeah. recruiting class is uh, – I have another thought, so. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, I have another thought, too. So yes, I'll yeah, please. I was just going to give it over to you to talk about the recruiting class as a whole. So finish up with the preferred walk-ons, and let's uh, stay on uh, the recruiting class as well. Yeah, uh, well, I think um, just back to the whole the power of a dream school thing, um, this this is kind of tangential, or this is related, but I remember uh, well, it probably would have been 2016 or, 20, 20, or 2017, I suppose, when he was like a freshman or whatever. But somehow this some commenter on our site mentioned something about Christian Galvin, that, and it, for some reason it's, it just stuck in my head, and I don't remember why. But um, I think he was a freshman or maybe a sophomore at the time, and I remember some commenters saying, saying um, uh, you galvanized by the comment? Ha, I hate you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I remember some commenter who, like, knew the family or who knew, I don't know, pretty much say, say that, yeah, this kid is good. Um, and also he's grown up a huge UW fan forever. If UW offers, he's in easily. And um, for some reason that just, like, stuck in my head stuck in my head even though I didn't hear about him for you know years later um but when you look at Jack Yerry if, if you're a UW fan going hey how could we not get Jack Yerry even though everything fits better for UW uh versus USC uh then look at the reverse of that obviously it's a lower graded player but you look at someone like Galvin who had I think he had like six or five or six or seven like scholarship offers for the FCS and 
that's like as, as far as the the power of a, the lure lure of a dream school like being like no I'm gonna pay I'm gonna take an actual walk on spot to play at my dream school I mean that's so much more of a of a of a, an example of of how the magnitude of effect that that can have so I just wanted to use that as an example anyways the end. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right about that, it's especially somebody who's local, um, and it goes both ways. There was another uh, two-star defensive lineman who initially said he was going to walk on at UW and then changed his mind and took a scholarship offer at Central, which I, I can't blame him for that either. I think that's very reasonable. If I was in the same position, if I wanted to keep playing football, I'd probably do that, uh, so I don't blame him at all. But uh, there are, you know, as we mentioned, quite a few other recruits who were not who were given scholarship offers, uh, signed largely in December. We missed you on the show that Rob and I did when we talked about the recruiting class writ large, uh, but I would love to hear uh, if there are a few highlights from this class, like a couple players who really stood out to you, uh, either, you know, the ones who did get the most attention, the ones who didn't. What are the things that are you're going to remember most from this recruiting class down the road? I mean, the first thing, I, I also, I don't want to focus necessarily on, like, who is the best or whatever, quote, unquote, because it's kind of boring looking at just, like, ooh, we got Savelle Smalls. Woo, that kicks ass. Um, but I think the first thing that, pops into my head or one of the first things is that the fact that Miles Murrow didn't get a bump or really didn't get an effectively didn't get a bump I think he actually dropped spaces in 24-7 final rankings is absurd to me I mean I know that centers are under under ranked um inherently in uh recruiting rankings but that's my first my my grievance against those would be him right there um but yeah, I was just thinking about this for the last week or so about like which which players aren't necessarily the best or the most flashy or whatever, but I that I'm most yeah, maybe that I'm most have the most amount of excitement greater than their ranking or status level or prestige level or whatever. Um and one of the first ones that came to mind was JV on Sunday, uh, from Waco. And I know that I don't, I don't know if that might be a controversial s- statement. I know when he committed, I saw a lot of comments of people being like, "Well, he looks slow," he, and he is, you know, he just doesn't look like someone that uh, is necessarily that exciting. And I pretty instantly disagreed with that, um, including after his senior film came out, it was kind of more of the same because he runs he runs so weird, and he's not a burner that I can see why you would watch his film and maybe be have question marks simply because because of it looking so incongruous but the more I watched him and the more that I thought about how important it is to have a running back room with different styles uh, of of runners the more I got really excited about the thought of him having a significant um share of carries say in a year or two or three um, how that would affect games the longer he's in games. Because you look at power backs like that, that uh, just the way that it, it affects defenses in the long run over three or four quarters is so substantial. Um, and so even if he isn't necessarily going to run off these huge, like, 20, 30, 40-yard runs, just giving him kind of in the way that Richard Newton was this year, um, I could see maybe even more potential. Uh, seeing that effect um, is something that I'm really looking forward to. 
And also, for what it's worth, he's not slow. He just runs weird. <laughs> like, he's not fast, but he's not going to get, you know. You know, I didn't see him get caught by anybody from behind when he was in any uh, highlights or anything. Um, and then another guy who I, I – there's there's a few others. Mikel Esty is someone I'm really excited about um, because he's really – I think he's really intuitive and a really strong tackler, and that's kind of a, not a super common combination. But one thing that kind of – May, I, I maybe think about my general approach to thinking about the offensive line was uh, Roger Rosengarten. Just, and I know he's also pretty highly ranked as well, so it's not like he's a sleeper pick to be talking about. But I think one thing I've seen comments on in the past is people, people wanting uh, offensive linemen who are coming in and who aren't quote-unquote projects based on, or at least if they are projects, they're projects because they're like Julius Bulo or Nathaniel Kalepo, who are huge guys but are, and are athletic but are raw. But not, but I've seen a lot of sentiment of people not liking guys who need to put on weight because of the assumption that if they need to put on weight that, you know, they're not naturally going to have that, I don't know, whatever it is that you need in an offensive lineman. But there's a there's some, I don't know if it was a study or just somebody who compiled a bunch of data and it makes sense when you think about it, the conclusion that this came to, which is if you look at, it was either the majority or a significant amount of um, either all pro or all all American or whatever um, tackles in college that if you look at them as high school recruits, were pretty much just guys like Rosengarten who are like tall, long, but not necessarily that big because he's listed as, I think, 6'5", 260. Um, because when you and it makes sense when you look at that athleticism, really or that really what you want in a tackle is somebody who has the athleticism and the feet and the ability to be strong. And if you're a 300 pound guy already in college, so often the reason why you're good is just because you're gigantic and can just shove people over. But then when you have to go over against you know people in college and the pros who aren't have your size, <laughs> you don't ne- don't necessarily have the quickness and the feet to adapt to that. So I think Rosengarten, for that reason, even though some people – I mean, for him, he's high enough rank where I don't think anyone was like, oh, I don't want him, he's too skinny. But I think, in general, some people have a tendency to turn their nose up at, at uh, offensive tackles in college who are not behemoths. But I think his profile and everything that he brings coming in is something I'm really excited about. And yeah, those are my I, 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 I would four, say, but yeah, I can uh, stop. Yeah, I, I just wanted to agree that highlighting the offensive lineman makes a ton of sense to me because I think if, just as a general principle, that's the one thing on a team that can make the rest of the production look so at a much higher level than its true talent level. You, you can uh, amplify the skills of the rest of your offense by developing a, an offensive line, and it's very rare you see national title contenders without great offensive lines. And as we build the program, trying to get to that next level, I think that's kind of where it has to start, both offensive and defensive line. Those are probably the two most important areas for me, even before getting the right quarterback or the right uh, middle linebacker or any of that. Uh, I'd also – one other thing to add to the point you were making about the strength, it reminds me a little bit of a kind of the, the – archetype of a basketball player who was undersized as a point guard growing up, learned how to dribble really well, learned the technical skills, and then hit a growth spurt and became six foot eleven. I think like Anthony Davis is one of those guys and there have been a handful through history. But the yeah. the 
offensive lineman who has to learn the technique in order to block somebody and then has the frame to put on weight later, even better. Like if you have that, yeah. uh, if you have the, the technical skill, you're forced to develop the technical skill and then you move on uh, to have the brute force later, you kind of have the total package and it's hard to get the total package without starting uh, with the technical ability. If you're, if you're that strong to start yeah. with, you probably aren't going to develop the same technical ability. Uh, before we uh, get, oh, yeah. Okay, and it's also, I think for what it's worth, you can teach technique, but the that, like, quick, t- quick twitch footwork is really hard to, you know, if you, you can, I mean, sure, you can train to become faster or to become quicker, but at a certain level, there is something innate about it. Um, and so if you're getting somebody who's, has, who looks like an offensive tackle but doesn't have those feet, or doesn't have the ability to have those feet, then that's that's like a, a pretty rough place to try to improve from, even if he looks maybe more the part. Right. I think that's exactly right. Uh, speaking of the offense, one other bit of news that came across since the last time we recorded was we will be choosing a quarterback from our existing quarterback room. Uh, it looked briefly like KJ, KJ Costello from Stanford might be a graduate transfer who would enroll at UW. Uh, instead, he chose to do the exact opposite and follow Mike Leach to Starkville, Mississippi, be the quarterback at Mississippi State. Uh, what was your takeaway from this situation, both, you know, the, the recruitment uh, of, of KJ Costello and also where it leaves us now with the same quarterbacks we thought we were going to have kind of all along? Um, yeah, I... On one hand, yeah, obviously I wanted him simply because you want to accumulate talent, period. Um, and at first, I'm not I'm not worried about the fact that we didn't get him. And at first, I really wasn't worried because I trusted, you know, the guys in the room and whatever. And but then the, the more I think about it, the more I am a little bit uh, on edge, simply because not because of his talent level or our quarterbacks that are currently there, their talent level, but simply because of the fact that uh, that Lake felt it was necessary to go get another transfer. Um, and for what I, I think for what it's worth, I think that speaks more to the fact that the the quarterback room just doesn't have that much depth as opposed to he thinks Sermon and Morris suck. Uh, I don't think I don't I don't think Sermon and Morris suck. I'm sure Jimmy Lake doesn't think that they outright suck or anything. Um, and it's, but it's just that, that it's kind of they're in a in a position where it could be really precarious, um, and you and where I think the marginal utility of adding somebody, regardless of who they are, is so high. And then if it's the chance to be someone with the experience of KJ Costello, um, you know that you kind of have to go after that. Um, so I keep going back and forth between being a little bit freaked out about the fact that Jimmy felt the need to go get one. And then also being reassured by the fact that he probably mostly felt he needed to get somebody because of the the depth issues. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we started hearing more about graduate transfer quarterbacks when they hired an offensive coordinator from outside the UW mm-hmm. Chris Peterson Jimmy Lake coaching triangle uh, because we're installing a new offense. There are probably some similarities, but it's not a playbook that. Sermon or Morris has had camp to evaluate and learn. So with that in mind, you're bringing in a more veteran quarterback who 
isn't operating at a playbook disadvantage. He's going to be operating the exact same uh, position relative to the offense. So as long as that's in place, Costello has a ton of experience playing in the conference. He knows the defense is better, and just mm-hmm. generally he has more experience on the field, on the college football field. So there are some advantages there, even if there is not a huge gap in talent, which I think is probably true. I don't think he's vastly more talented than either of our internal options. So at the end of the day, I think they probably looked at it like an opportunity to have somebody who's probably going to start with a little bit of a head start uh, in overall experience. He's not going to have the disadvantage of being behind the rest of the quarterbacks in learning the playbook. And he's probably even or slightly ahead in his physical ability and his maturation uh, technically. So, you know, he probably comes in with a little advantage, and if you can just have him for a year, that's worth it. You know, if we've got uh, Sam Heward coming in a year after that, hopefully he is good enough to take the reins fairly quickly. If not, uh, you know, you probably still have whoever's left in the quarterback room from this year who would have chosen not to transfer. As it is, I don't think we're in a terrible position, and I'm just, at this point, just interested to get to fall camp to see how things shake out between Morris and Sermon. It's been interesting that so many of the people close to the team, uh, like Christian Cable, Mike Borrell, have kind of said, watch out for Morris. He may be a year younger. He might not be as touted of a recruit, but he really seemed to have kind of an it factor and a playmaking and leadership ability. So I, I, we'll see if it kind of shakes out that way when everybody's in camp. But uh, I, I have no problem going into the fall with either of those two as the starting quarterback. And I think fall camp will give us a good – and spring practices will give us a good indication of uh, yeah. who's kind of the leader in the clubhouse. Yeah, and I also think that's kind of part of the reason why I'm not super freaked out is that you have a really high ceiling option with Morris – or with Morris, with Sermon. And then you have a pretty high floor with Morris. So it's – uh, you know, if they go with Sermon, then that means already that he's been put himself in a position with his accuracy and his decision making, um, where they already think where they think he's better than Morris, which is honestly pretty good. So then, if you have those combinations with his physical abilities, then that's like that's a pretty high stamp of confidence there of of the offensive ceiling as well. If you have him being able to add those qualities, um, those intangibles that Morris has, or intangibles and accuracy. And then if he doesn't, then you have Morris who isn't, yeah, he's not going to bomb at 70 yards off his back foot. And so I suppose the offense will be limited in that way. And in the greater parabola, he'll have to put on his throws that are mid-range throws and on his slightly lesser velocity. But he still is a good quarterback, all things considered. So even if you can't get to that absolute next elite level necessarily. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of an area where I'm not too totally freaked out, even though it would have been nice to get Costello, and obviously I would have preferred that to happen. Yeah, long story short, competition is good. We have a fallback option. Regardless of who comes out of it, we've got two good options. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll, we'll pay some bills. We'll come back on the other side. We're going to talk about recruiting in the rest of the conference besides UW. Thanks for sticking with us. We are going to talk a little bit about a couple of UW's rivals in the Pac-12 and what signing day told us about them. Uh, primarily, I, I am interested in the catastrophe at USC and Oregon emerging as a major threat in the Pac-12 North uh, through recruiting. First, a little bit on Oregon. 
UW and Oregon, depending on the rankings that you look at, are kind of neck and neck as the top recruiting class in the Pac-12. Oregon definitely got a lot more press for their recruiting class. Part of that is just their style is very in-your-face, and they make sure that everybody knows everything they're doing. Impressively, they they flipped a four-star defensive tackle commit from Alabama on signing day who's from Alabama, which is pretty amazing. Uh, More generally, what are your thoughts on Oregon's recruiting under Cristobal and where they stand as a program and the threat that they'll pose to UW as these seem like kind of neck and neck two rivals of the top two programs in the uh, Pac-12 North? Um, yeah, I for one, seeing that Alabama guy flip to them was, I wasn't ever super demoralized about Oregon's recruiting uh, in relation to UW until that happened, and I'm like, ugh, really? Um, and, and I'm not obviously going to make any accusations just purely based on speculation, because I don't want to be that person. Circumstantially, though. <laughs> You're certainly welcome to make allegations without any evidence. We're not, not, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying anything happened. Just circumstantially, I'm looking at that like, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the main thing that, uh, about Oregon versus UW is if, it, if I'm looking at just this class, I think – that defensive tackle notwithstanding, I think I would probably take UW's. But the thing that irks me that I hope UW's staff focuses a lot more on um, under Lake is that for as much as I don't, for as much as I hate, and I think every UW fan really doesn't like this, the kind of uh, superficial hype and whatever that Oregon manufactures about themselves because it does feel kind of slimy and whatever. The fact is that their ability to market themselves or their ability to hype up their class now helps them with talent accumulation down the road and the long term. And that's really what that's about. And I'm not, I obviously, I don't want Jimmy Lakes Washington to turn into some, some weird mega branded marketing Nike U style hype machine that's all just substance or all just like style over substance and this stupid horse shit that as a fan you pull your eyes over but I do think I mean I think it's important for this staff and I think they for what it's worth I think they do recognize that Uh, I think it's important that they know that or that they focus on the fact that while Peterson rightfully so I, I don't I don't think this is a bad life philosophy, you know, kind of prefer the, like, work hard in silence, get your head down, go through it, whatever. The fact is that high school 16- and 17-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 18-year-olds, they are, you know, they they like hype and they like things that are quote-unquote cool. And so to be able to market yourself to them based on your current class so that the future classes in 2021 and 2022 are you're more on their radar as you dub. That's not a that shouldn't be viewed by UW fans or UW football in general as something that's beneath us. And that's something that uh, sometimes I feel like I'll see our like middle aged UW fans being like, oh, we should like kind of be crotchety about that. Um, but I think I I'm optimistic that Lake and then. Uh, is going to be a little bit more savvy about um, promoting UW's image uh, and 
I think that's something that is clearly the difference between UW and Oregon right now. And I think we've seen uh, already a little bit of a change with Lake. But, that, yeah, that's my main thoughts. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking the exact same thing that you said about uh, <laughs> as much as the gimmicky self-promotion seems distasteful to uh, a lot of people, myself included, the exact demographic that it works on is the 16- and 17-year-olds who are elite athletes. Nobody is more interested in gimmicky, stylish self-promotion than people in that demographic. So, you know, it works for them. I think Chris Peterson willfully sought out a different class or a different type, not not to imply that it's better or worse, just a different type of person who's less interested in self-promotion and, and the, the built-for-life-and-our kind of guy thing, um, which has sometimes been characterized as a cultural or um, ethnic difference. I think what it really is supposed to be is we're not interested in self-promotion. We're team-focused, and we're trying to get a job done and, and develop ourselves, uh, which you know, that will appeal to a subset of recruits. It's probably a smaller subset, but they seem to have made the gamble that it's a subset who will work on improving themselves to a degree that they don't need to have as many five-star recruits. With all that said, uh, I would, you know, cut off an ear to have uh, Oregon's inside linebacker recruiting class. Those guys are terrifying. It's going to be awful to play against them as often as we will over the next few years because they're so good. Yeah, Yeah. both of them. And also, um, for what it's worth, I think I – not that you were making this argument, but I also dislike the binary that UW and Oregon fans both put up of either, A, you're a built-for-life, team-first, you know, going to sacrifice whatever, work hard, blah, blah, blah guy, or you're all into hype and style and glitz. I dislike the concept that those two things are one or the other, and I know you weren't trying to imply that they are. Um, I dislike the concept that those are either one or the other and that there's no spectrum or blending thereof because there's plenty, you know, liking Instagram or whatever doesn't mean that you're not going to work super hard um, and vice versa. So yeah, yeah, you're definitely right about that. I think, you know, fans of both schools kind of like to create a binary narrative because it's fun to see yourself as extremely different from your rival, like intrinsically different from your rival, and then paint your way as being much, like, morally superior. And mm-hmm. I, I'm fine with that. It's part of the fun of cheering for uh, sports. But you're definitely right that there isn't nearly the kind of division between them uh, that we make it out to be. But I definitely understand why there is. Speaking of uh, branding and glitz and glamour, uh, the school where that hasn't been working so well is USC. They finished with the recruiting class ranked 10th in the Pac-12, uh, which is just absolutely unfathomable for USC. No matter how good or bad they've been, they've been pretty much either one or two every year in the Pac-12 as long as recruiting rankings have been reliably tracked. They were third last year, which was kind of a catastrophe for them, and 19th nationally. This year they were 10th in the Pac-12, 55th nationally. Uh, they only signed 13 commits. Uh, they had two four-stars in their entire recruiting class. There was a lot of, you know, hand-wringing in the early signing period, but reassurances that since Clay Helton was, you know, once they'd had the coach situation resolved, and it eventually was resolved in the sense that Helton was retained, they would be able to fill out the class uh, more fully, and they absolutely didn't do that. They have, like, nobody coming in. A big part of the ranking is 
just lack of players. 13 is just an extremely small class unless you're like Harvard or, or even Stanford will usually take like 17 or 18 kids. Um, but, you know, within those 13, the rate, ratings are fairly high, but still only two guys who would qualify as blue chips. Uh, what say you about USC? Is this team just like – is this just a different program now, or are we just done with USC being a superpower? So they – I didn't know they only had 13. They really only had 13 guys between both of the of the signing periods? Yeah, I just looked it up today. Like, as of right now, they have 13 signees in their recruiting class. That's insane. I knew that they were bad for this uh, recruiting cycle. I didn't. I didn't know it was that bad. Um, that's hilarious. I'm sorry. That's so funny. Um, that. Uh, whew, um, yeah. I don't think. I don't. I will never be. I will. I mean. Yeah. I will never be not uh, worried about USC simply because based on their status. If they get a competent coach, you can turn that program around in a year. Uh, and then, and that is both, like, you can ret- ret- uh, turn that program around in a year on the field, and probably even before turning them around on the field, you can uh, improve, get your recruiting back up to normal, simply based on the whole hype of, like, USC's back if, when they have a new coach. So I'll never be, uh, I'll never laugh at them too hard, simply because I know, that one day they'll figure their shit out, except for if their athletic department is a bunch of idiots, so maybe not. Um, so I'll never call them not a blue blood, because I think that's insane. But that is really funny. I didn't realize it was that dire. I knew it was bad, but that's bad. Yeah, I think, you know, that's. I agree with you that it doesn't. it won't take a ton. Like, they have built-in advantages being in Southern California, having the history they have, having the resources they have that once they get the right person there, they should be able to turn it around. But they're setting themselves up for a lot more pain than they really need to. You look mm-hmm. at schools, you know, there are teams who are on USC's level who have kind of, like, put themselves through really bad situations by just hiring one bad coach after another or sticking with one bad coach. Like, think of how long uh, Texas was down uh, before. I mean, they've been down kind of in yeah. multiple periods over the last, like, 30 years with one uh, kind of transcendent stretch in the middle of it. Uh, and, you know, there's really – USC's kind of bottoming out even lower than that right now. Uh, a friend of mine asked me the other day how this happened. Like, how did USC get here? Why do they still have Clay Helton under contract or uh, working for them if he's this incompetent? And the answer, I, the only answer I could come up with was it's just kind of been a perfect storm of things keeping him from getting fired. Like, he was ready to be fired, and then they had a really good year with Sam Darnold, and that bought him more time. And then they sucked again after Darnold went to the pros, and uh, there was he had uh, Lynn Swan bailed him out for a, another season. And then it seemed like he was going to get fired this year, and then they hired a new athletic director later in the year than they probably should have and couldn't work out whatever arrangements around staffing with Urban Meyer that they wanted to work out. Uh, and they're stuck with Helton for at least another year. And, it I mean, it seems obvious that you would want to just rip off the Band-Aid. Uh, on the other hand, if you just bring in somebody equally bad, it's not going to fix it. But it seems like with a school like USC, it really shouldn't be that hard. You just make a list of, like, the top five coaches uh, in the country who aren't currently working for a top ten program and just call them one after another 
offering them as much money as you can offer them, and somebody's going to take the job and probably have a pretty easy time getting them back into the top ten. Like, I'm convinced if they if they went out tomorrow and hired, I don't know, P.J. Fleck. Like, they could get P.J. Fleck. I'm almost yeah, positive. Sure. Yeah, why, why it not? would be weird if they couldn't. But, yeah. Yeah, why wouldn't you? You're USC. You have a crap load of money. You have a crap load of history and prestige and whatever. And then you have the talent pool right there. Uh, and honestly, pretty low standards from the last five or six or – I mean, really, since 2010. So – and they if, if they got him, they could – their 2020 – their 2021 season would be awesome if they went out tomorrow and got P.J. Fleck. But they're stupid, so – the one thing, so when people listen back to this in in eight months or whatever and call us idiots, uh, Bill Conley put out his returning uh, production rankings today, and USC I think is fifth in the country and third among Power Five conferences in most returning production from last year. And they were quite good when Slovis played this year, so it's possible that they kind of bounce back immediately. But this is a conversation about – more the medium and long-term future than the short-term because they're not, you know, having the 55th ranked recruiting class in the country at USD is horrific. And if, if they actually do have enough returning production to surprise people this year, and that keeps uh, uh, Helton in his job another year, that's only going to make the pain worse when they eventually do rip off the band. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what's going to happen because they are have just enough talent. They have the talent level where they can, kind of wing it and get out of position, get out, get themselves out of hard positions, but not the actual coaching level. So I think they're, and they have all that return production. So I'm pretty sure they're going to be just good enough next year for Clay Helton to be retained and UW and Oregon to do a little celebratory dance. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So I, let's, let's wrap it up there. Let's talk a little bit about uh, recommendations and plugs. Tell me what you've got going on and then we will uh, see everybody off for the weekend. Um, I, oh, okay, I know we don't like supporting anything Duck-related, um, but I was, my, my frenemies at Quack 12 podcast, uh, I was, um, I recorded a guest episode with them, uh, earlier this week. I think it's out now, and then next week I'm also on that one, and it, it's fun, we just talk about, we pretty much just shit-talk the rest of the conference, um, because it was the end-of-season awards. Uh, so we did that. That was fun. Talked about some stuff. And then, uh, next year, or, <laughs> excuse me, next week or whatever, there's another episode that I'm on, um, talking about UW stuff. Um, otherwise, if you're in Bellingham on Monday, uh, come out to, I think it's the Firefly Lounge. I'll be doing 30 minutes or whatever, um, at the end of that show, although actually it is an open mic, uh, comedy thing, so those are always sometimes painful, but, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be there to make it not be painful at the end. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and for what it's worth, Bellingham has a really good reputation, and it's, it's, I think, the longest running mic in Bellingham, so, uh, yeah, there's some other shows coming up, but I don't have them on the top of my head, so whatever. Uh, so I, I, one thing I, I will note, I usually takes about uh, a couple weeks for me to get through a book, but we're recording less frequently lately, so I've been able to burn through a few. Uh, the one that really stood out was a uh, 
nonfiction book from last year called uh, Say Nothing by Patrick Raiden Keith. It's a, an historical account, but it's almost told like a thriller through the accounts of several different people who are in prominent figures in the troubles in Northern Ireland through oh. the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And it has this twist towards the end, which isn't really a twist because it's true. It was the actual story, but the way the story is told, it feels like a twist. And it's absolutely just wonderful. Like, it's a little dry to start out, but when you get in the last 50 to 100 pages, it's just as thrilling as a nonfiction book can be. So I, I highly recommend that to anybody who has uh, interest in, like, thriller, thrilling stories or history or particularly in uh, that period of history in uh, Ireland and the United Kingdom. It was very, very good. Um, if you want to add on to – I might have already plugged this a while ago, but if you want to add on to your Troubles-related – uh, content, uh, dairy. I think I did. I think I. Yeah, I you did. Dairy. And I, it's been sitting in my uh, Netflix queue for a while, and I haven't got to it. But it seems like it would be a very good companion very piece. All right, so that does it for us today. We're going to wrap up there. But thank you all for listening, and we will be back in a couple weeks or whenever the news dictates that we have something to talk about. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and talk to you all later. Bye. Bye.